0: Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of The 5 by your one-stop shop for rapid-fire board game reviews. On this week's episode, Mike treats us to a look at Sunday split. Ruth leads us through the Lost Expedition. I'll be back to talk about just what it means to be a cat lady. We'll have some adventure with Sarah's review of Catacombs and Castles, but first, let's hear from Lindsay and her review of Ethnos.
1: Hi everyone, it's Lindsay here, In this episode I'm going to tell you a little bit about my thoughts on Ethnos, designed by Paola Mori with artwork by John Howe. My copy is published by Call or Not, and it's a 2-6 player game with a 45-60 minute duration. In Ethnos, we're claiming territory in a fictional fantasy land by placing our colour tokens on different territories. You place the tokens by collecting and laying a band of cards, either by colour or faction type. These are drawn from a central area. the draw deck and each turn you either pick up a card or lay down a band. You have three rounds or two for a two player game to score as many points as possible which is determined by who is in control of a territory at the end of the round and band sizes which are scored with triangle numbers. You can only place a token in a certain territory if your band size exceeds the number of tokens already there and different factions can award you bonuses and abilities during the game. Ethnos isn't dissimilar to last episode's Mythotopia in the sense that whilst it's been widely recognised as a very decent game, it's been equally panned for the weak generic theme and naff artwork. And I'm kind of back on that subject again, because it does get me a bit prickly. Whilst I can't stand bad taste artwork, I'm actually more annoyed by the games that have gorgeous artwork but are empty vessels, or worse still, artwork that's been clearly well considered, and a book that's mind-bogglingly bad. Games like Ethnos, whilst not being stunning to look at, but play very well, I'm absolutely fine with, and it's not bad. There's nothing really wrong with it. It's just a little bit drab. And looking at my collection, many of my favourite games don't have stunning artwork. And games that carry off both, I hold my hands up to. So anyway... That's the art bit done. Now let me tell you why I enjoy Ethnos and maybe give it a chance if you're wavering on it. What drew me to it initially was the photos that I spied on social media. Plastic tokens that stack up rather nicely and are fun to play with on areas of the board. And that was it. I thought, oh, this is an area control game. I like those. So when I was offered a game at Gen Con, I jumped at a chance and I wasn't disappointed. What surprised me was it's actually a frenzied card grabbing game that only lasts up to three rounds with two plus players. And we're talking rapid craze, blinking and you'll miss your turn card grabbing and very quick decision making. I normally assume area control games will be epic slow building with a long duration an adequate time for mulling and strategising, which really isn't the case in Ethnos. Yes, you must have some strategy, but it's more like on-the-spot strategy, which I understand may turn some gamers off, but I really like this aspect. On terms where you're blind drawing cards, it can really alter your strategy pretty quickly, but there are a set of strategies you can take. For example, just collecting halflings won't gain you any territory, but will score you the most points as a band, or if you're playing with merfolk, you can use them to place a free token anywhere, then you can really spread your influence. Skeletons are a surefire way to stack up lots in every area, but you need to balance this right, as they don't count towards a band size, so you could fall down badly in that area if you get too many, much like your are disassembling skelly army. And this is why I disagree somewhat on the weak theme. Whilst it's not really strong throughout, it's thematic. All the factions have thematic abilities, merfolk trickling out of the sea, spreading over territory far and wide, Skeletons enlarging your ban and then falling apart at the last minute. Wizards giving you ability to keep your unused cards instead of discarding, which is a wonderful work of sorcery. And Orcs doing what Orcs do. You get the idea. But honestly, if there were more to it than that, and every card was different, every card had a different ability, then events happened, etc, etc, it wouldn't be the same game. But it would be a lot like other games. And I really feel that Ethnos has a unique flavour. And it's not trying to be more than it is. But it's fun. And that's really the winning factor for me in games I purchase these days. Whether it's light, medium, heavy, whether the theme is dark, or light and airy. If it ain't fun, I ain't playing. Because that's what games should be about. It's games that can be fun and still work very well that I'm finding it harder to come by. Also, the fact that you can mix and match the factions really amp up the replayability because every faction gives the game a different feel. And you can explore which combinations work well together and which ones you prefer to use. So far, I have to say Murphy, Comminotaurs, or my preferred factions. And you gotta love those half for the points they rack up. Another thing I enjoy is a tense push-luck aspect. As it's approaching the end of the deck and the third dragon is imminent, I agonise either whether I'm going to keep going in vain and hope that my sought after card appears. Or, if I should lay my band down now, knowing that if I missed the chance, I'll be kicking myself. And after the last dragon appears, it literally is round over, there's no final turns, and you score immediately. Another mechanic I find interesting is where you discard your unused cards publicly, giving others the chance to snap them up. This brings in a possible avenue of strategy, and a couple of times I've changed my plan at the last minute because I've seen a whole bunch of Minotaurs that have been discarded and think, oh, I'll have them. But on the flip side, of the coin it also forces you to be careful what you are going to discard because you don't want to give other players, like me, Opportunities to score big points with your discards. <laughs> Lastly, unlike many other area control games I've played, it's not really conflict heavy. There is conflict, there have been some ...why that happen moments, but it's not too full on. And it's also very much a do your own thing kind of game. With the larger group, it was a little bit more lively. Two player, it's a bit more of a quiet experience. So I feel like games with lots of player interaction, that aspect could be a slight downfall for you. So that's Ethnos. And even if you're not sold on it and you might not rush out and buy it tomorrow, Play if you get the chance, because I think you could be pleasantly surprised. If you want to see and hear more from me, you can visit my Instagram and YouTube channel happy Meeples, or pop up my blog, ww.shinyhappmeeplesblog.wordpress.com, or follow me on Twitter, CapTwest Meeples Co. Bye for now.
2: Growing up, I split you choose was always very serious business, as it was often the only way my mother would let us get at least part of that last cookie, cake piece, pie, or whatever treat she was forcing me to share with my two unworthy brothers. This was a serious battle of wits to see which brother could outsmart the others and get the most without anyone else realizing it. And while I would like to think I was pretty good at it as a kid, I was probably just not smart enough to realize how many times my older brother had me fooled. So, with all that splitting and choosing experience, when I learned that there was a whole genre of games dedicated to the concept of I split, you choose, I passed. I mean, why would you want to do this when you can't actually eat the spoils of the match? Okay, joking aside, I did keep an eye on the genre while waiting for the right theme which finally arrived in Sunday split. Food is such the perfect topic for these games, and when I heard this one was from fellow NC State alum Nate Bivens and published by powerhouse Foxtrot and Renegade Games, well, it was time to jump in, ice cream scoop first. In Sunday split, two to five players are trying to make the perfect ice cream sundae from the cards on offer. Each round the active player takes a certain number of cards and splits them into pile numbers equal to the number of players with most cards face up, but some secret cards face down that only the dealer knows about. Will those cards be yucky vegetables to ruin your Sunday with negative points? Or is the dealer trying to bluff their opponents to avoid that pile because the person who splits the piles is always the last one to choose? As the game progresses, it is easy to see what cards a player needs most, allowing the dealer to set up some really tempting traps. All I need is one more sprinkles card to pair up with this whipped cream to score 5 points. But if that face-down card is a vegetable, then suddenly it's possibly only a 2-point swing my way. Maybe I should just take the banana pile instead because a second-place tie-in bananas nets me 5 points as well. There are some games like Sushi Go that are based on information you don't know what cards are going to be passed to you, and are therefore just probabilistic. In Sunday Split, it's a mixture of possible available cards, and knowing that certain cards are likely and intentionally being hidden from you. Which makes this a more mental game of bluffing and calling bluffs on top of collecting sets of cards for points. Even more so at two-player, it's really a direct battle of wits between yourself and your opponent. At two-player, your odds of getting a vegetable card also go up from 1 in 7 cards to 1 in 6 cards. So, odds are, at least one of those two face-down cards is a vegetable. But as the odds of potentially bad cards in your Sunday increase while the player count decreases, this is more than made up for by an increasing number of cards in your tableau at the end of the game. So, I didn't personally feel that a two-player game felt any meaner than a four-player game. I unfortunately didn't have the opportunity to play five-player, as I couldn't get either of the dogs to do anything more than just drool on the cards. Okay, I kind of jumped ahead a bit talking bananas and sprinkles, because while I think food themes are a built-in perfect theme for I Split You Choose games, and yes, I did chuckle at the implied banana split joke, the theme is just the scoring mechanism. So let's go over it. The cards you're collecting are three flavors of ice cream, chocolate, strawberry, and vanilla, and yes, that's an order from worst to best flavors, just so you know. For each set of all three you collect, that's three points. Each ice cream scoop is also individually worth one to two points. Cherries are multipliers for whichever flavor of ice cream you have the most of at the end of the game. Bananas are worth ten points to the player with the most, and five for second most. Whipped cream and sprinkles nets you five points per completed set. Then there's the previously mentioned vegetable cards, which are worth negative points. Think of it like a very pared-down Sushi Go score sheet and in my mind, Sushi Go is an excellent comparison. Both scratch a similar itch for me, just in different ways. Complexity-wise, Sunday Split is a simpler game. There's just fewer cards that score in different ways to figure out. My six-year-old son is able to apply a logical progression to building his tableau in Sunday Split, unlike Sushi Go. But Sunday Split also requires more thought during gameplay to read what everyone needs, figure out which of those cards best help you, and setting up those piles. And if you aren't setting the piles this round to determine if that pile with the face-down card is really a trap built just for you. Playing with my 6-year-old is fun, but playing with my 11-year-old and my wife who can better set up bluffs and double bluffs is an even more satisfying game. My one and only one niggle would be that there is no need for a scoring pad for this game. Scoring is simple enough that it should be doable in one's head. But seeing the pads, my kids instantly grab them and start scoring, and I feel bad for the wasted paper maybe it's time to get a laminator and some dry erase markers. But that's it. Yet another hit from Foxtrot Games, who have yet to do wrong by me, and Renegade, who are frankly pretty high up there as well. So, if you wish to discuss Sunday Split further, or to send me your favorite homemade ice cream recipe, you can reach me on Twitter at Mike Risley.
3: 5 by listeners, it's Ruth here, and this week I wanted to talk about a game I've been really enjoying as a solo experience, despite the fact that I don't tend to play solo board games and have yet to actually win the damn game. Designed by Pierre Sylvester and with art from Garen Ewing, The Lost Expedition was published by Osprey Games in 2017. Based upon Peter Fawcett's ill-fated Amazon expedition to find El Dorado, the game has 1-5 players attempting to find their way through the jungle to find the lost city of Zed and it can be played cooperatively, competitively, or as a solo game, the role set that I've been using. Regardless of the playstyle being used, players need to figure out the best trail to create from the jungle cards in their hands before then resolving their group's progress along that path, using the expertise of different members to survive the many hazards and to get through the occasional pleasant moments along the way. Players will need to balance their limited supplies of food and ammunition and their limited health pool in order to traverse the jungle and the kicker is they'll need to do so twice a day, morning and evening, following a new trail each time, and eat in from that same limited food store between trips to maintain their health, until they eventually get far enough through the jungle to reach their goal. The morning and evening paths follow different roles for how the card order is determined, and the same hand of cards must be used for both parts of each day, with half going into each phase. So players need to carefully consider which cards they use for each trail with this in mind. Each card has a combination of things to encounter. Some can be mandatory, some may form a group from which one must be resolved, and then other encounters are fully optional. The encounters take expertise and resources to resolve, and can result in wounds being taken. But successful encounters can also provide resources, extra expertise, some rare healing, and the all-important progress required to actually move the group closer to the lost city. The Lost Expedition is tough. So tough. During the game's 20-30 to 30 minute playtime, resources grow scarcer and scarcer, and your decisions get increasingly harder. Opportunities for overall progress are rare and tend to come at high costs that must be weighed carefully. Losing an explorer means that that character's particular area of expertise is no longer easily available for the associated challenges. And if all three are lost, then so is the game. The challenge, however, is one that leaves you feeling like you can do better, that on your next trip into the Amazon you'll get further, and that maybe one day you'll actually see that fabled city. Like every other game I've seen from Osprey, The Lost Expedition is exquisite. The whole thing is packaged in a book-style box like the one that houses their edition of Odin's Ravens, a game I also adore, and that I previously covered in Episode 8 of this podcast. Opening that box reveals the gorgeous, thick, oversized cards housed in a simple insert that also contains the few tokens and meeples required to play. It's a beautiful presentation, full of art that manages to avoid compromising the functionality of the excellent graphic design. And I really like the style chosen, which reminds me of classic Belgian-French comics like Tintin. But even more than the aesthetics of the game, I really appreciate the diversity represented. Every character in the game is a real historical figure, but the designer has taken the time to find appropriate people who represent a mix of races and ages, and to do so with an equal gender split. The various jungle tribes encountered within the game are also representative of real people, and a designer's note in the rulebook recognizes the difficulty of reducing tribal peoples to a single encounter card, and speaks of the care they took to represent those people as evenly and responsibly as possible. The Lost Expedition is a game that tells an interesting and exciting story full of close calls, and where even the smallest triumph feels like an accomplishment as you scramble your way towards the lost city. Every time I get it to the table, I play the game at least twice, immediately shuffling and resetting the game upon my first loss, determined to at least do better on a second. The overall journey to The Lost City has just nine steps to make, and so far I have died at either the fourth or fifth of these every single time. And yet I still consider this game to be one of the most satisfying solo gaming experiences I've had. The gorgeous production value serves to enhance the experience, making for a fantastic way to sit down with a cup of coffee and have the mundane, ordinary world just disappear while you go on a quick adventure. I can't wait to introduce the game to others and try the cooperative or competitive modes, but until I get that chance, I'm perfectly happy to continue exploring the jungle alone. So please check out The Lost Expedition if any of this sounds at all interesting. And if you want to talk more about it, you can find me at sequentialgamer.wordpress.com or on Twitter at Roof. That's an R, four O's, and an F. Thanks for listening.
0: Recording these reviews is relatively easy. Five minutes to ramble on about a game I like? Yeah, no problem. But what often turns a five-minute project into double or triple that is my beloved 18-year-old, mostly blind and arthritic cat, Dewey. Dewey is loud, really loud, and he likes to make his presence known. Chances are I've probably already had to start and stop this recording five times by now to edit him out. Do I consider myself a cat lady? I'm not sure. I mean, I have a cat. And I love him dearly, and I have been known to sink to him, and I did knit him a beanie once, okay, yeah, you probably have a point, but there is no shame in my cat lady game, and in the game Cat Lady from a e g you two can let your love of our feline friends run wild, released in twenty seventeen Cat Lady is the inaugural game designed and illustrated by Josh Wood in Cat Lady you and your fellow players are working to round out a robust kitty crew who are all well-fed and well-loved. At its core, Cat Lady is a card-drafting game. The rules are simple. And to the uninitiated, this game could have been dismissed as just another game that's all theme with no substance. I'm wild about a theme, and even I was leery. Would this game just exploit the misconception that Cat lovers are obsessed weirdos? Would this just be another title with a cat theme slapped on top to cover up a bunch of sins when it comes to gameplay? I'm happy to say my fears were unfounded. In Cat Lady, players draft three cards at a time from a central display, either taking an entire row or an entire column of cards. Then that row is filled, and the next player drafts the row or column of their choice as long as it isn't the three cards that just came into the display. You may find yourself drafting cats to add to your menagerie. Like most, these cats are picky when it comes to what they like to be fed, and fed cats are happy cats, and they'll earn you points. Thankfully, there are cards that let you acquire milk, tuna, and chicken to feed your hungry friends. But don't just hoard food, or you'll find yourself taking a penalty at the end of the game for all your excess. Also, cats and their owners need a bit of fun and play, so it might be a good idea to snag some costumes for your cat, or maybe some catnip for some endgame bonuses. Lastly, you can build sets of all the different toys your cat likes. Like us, they get bored with the same thing over and over again. And variety is the spice of life. Or nine lives, to be specific. The game ends when the display can no longer be filled. Then cats are fed, points are awarded and deducted, and a winner is declared. I have the pleasure of meeting Josh at BGGCon, and he said he wanted to make a cat game that actual cat people would like. You know, where no one gets exploded or blended. I'd say he succeeded. If I had to give a negative, I'd say for a designer who's also an illustrator, there was a lot of sameness in the illustrations of the cats. It's a cat game for people who love cats. We want more cats. Cat Lady is a great filler game. I played it both at two-player and at four-player, and with turns being simply grab three cards, The gameplay is quick, lasting about 20 minutes regardless of player count. With the rules being so simple and the themes so accessible, I wouldn't hesitate to bring it out with new gamers. However, this game would benefit greatly with a few player aids thrown into the box since there's multiple ways to gain and lose points. Having a quick reference sheet would have been helpful more times than not when I've played this game. Cat Lady retails for about $25 and is a great value at that price. Cat Lady's endearing and lighthearted, and even though, yes, you'll spend a lot of time looking through all the cards and fawning over the adorable cat names, you'll also find a solid drafting and set collecting game under all that fur. For the 5 i I'm Stephanie Stonerob, and until next time, stay playful.
4: Full Euro-style strategy games are nice and all, but sometimes you just want to play a game that lets you send little bits of wood flying across the table. That's where Catacombs and Castles comes in. It's a dexterity game about flicking wooden discs. Designed by Aaron West and published by Elzer Games in 2017, Catacombs and Castles is based on Catacombs, which was originally published in 2010, was difficult to get in recent years, and has just now been republished in its third edition. Catacombs and Castles is played in two teams team castle, and team catacomb. Players on each team choose heroes, represented by the aforementioned wooden discs. I love that the characters on both teams are called heroes, not castle heroes and catacomb monsters or something like that. It lets players choose a team based on the character art or abilities they like, without feeling like they have to choose the good guys or the bad guys. We're all heroes in this game. The teams start on opposite corners of the board, and every hero moves once per round. The goal is to flick your hero across the board, striking heroes from the other team. What specifically each hero can do is dictated by their ability cards. And this is where Catacombs and Castles starts to get complicated. There are many different possible moves. Melee attacks, where you flick your hero directly at an enemy, sometimes you announce a target in advance, sometimes you damage anyone you hit. Range attacks, where you put a smaller disc next to your hero, and flick the smaller disc at the enemy. Some range attacks do damage, Some are like grappling hooks that pull the enemy close to you to set up a melee attack. One is even a net that gets placed on top of the enemy and prevents them from taking another turn until someone knocks the net off. There's also a rush, moving your hero into position but doing no damage. And there's even a move called egg that lets you hatch a warrior, that is, add another attacker to your team. Each ability card has a series of icons telling you which of this wide variety of actions you can take and in what sequence. The iconography is complex. Three pages of the rulebook are devoted to explaining what each icon means, plus a quick reference guide on the back cover. I've played Catacombs and Castles several times, with experienced gamers and with more social players, and I think it works better for people who play lots of games and are used to complex rule systems, someone who might find a game like Flick'Em Up a bit too simple. I asked the social players what they thought of Catacombs and Castles, and a typical comment was, well, the part about flicking discs was fun. I think they found interpreting the icons on the cards a bit of a chore, and experienced gamers picked it up much more quickly. But even for them, Catacombs and Castles is more fun on subsequent plays. You spend so much of the first game looking up icons and saying, what does that one do again? It slows the game down, and a disc-flicking game should feel fast. Catacombs and Castles is billed as an introduction to the Catacombs dexterity system, and functionally it is very similar to Catacombs, But somewhat simpler and quicker to play. I haven't had the chance to play Catacombs yet, but I have read through the rulebook and it seems pretty involved. If I were going to get just one, I'd start with Catacombs and Castles, simply because it's easier to get up and running. Then if you love it and want something you can really sink your teeth into, Catacombs 3rd Edition is there for you. As a team game, Catacombs and Castles is designed for an even number of players, but this is absolutely not necessary. I've played it with 5 players and with 7, And we just gave each team the same number of heroes. The team with fewer players just shared the extra hero, so each team got the same number of turns. There's also a one versus many boss mode, where one player is the castle lord or catacombs lord and faces off against all the others. Unlike team mode, which can accommodate any number of players up to eight, boss mode is designed for exactly two or four players. Now, because this is a dexterity game based on physical skill, it is easy for a game to become unbalanced. I played a game with one player who was kind of a ringer. He'd played a lot of pool and clearly understood the physics of it much better than the rest of us. And he pretty much ran away with the game. You can try to balance this by making sure the most skilled players are split up between the teams. And playing in large groups will help too by diluting the impact of the uber player. So, what's fun about catacombs and castles? The unpredictability of flicking discs across the board can surprise you in highly entertaining ways. For instance, Setting up a perfect shot, then misfiring and just gently tapping your hero an inch or two. That's hilarious. Or lucking into an amazing attack. Accidentally banking your hero off an obstacle and striking several enemies around a corner. That is also hilarious. It's the thrill of victory and the agony of defeat, sometimes all in the same turn. The character types are wildly imaginative. You could play a vampire princess, a crossbow-wielding robot, an evil gardener, a gelatinous cube, or a squirrel. The board and cards are printed in bright, appealing colors and feature gorgeous art by Quan Shai Moria. Getting to spend an evening with Quan Shai's distinctive art is a major part of the game's appeal to me. And finally, there's something so satisfying about the physicality of it, sending discs flying into each other. It's just fun. And that's Catacombs and Castles. My name is Sarah, and when I'm not storming the castle with the vampire princess and the gelatinous cube, you can find me on Twitter, at Sarah You've been listening to The 5 By. Follow us on Twitter at 5 By Games. Like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash 5 games. Join our BGG Guild, number 2810. Listen to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. Or head over to our website, 5 From all of us at The 5 By, thanks for listening.
0: The 5-Buy is a member of the Inside Voices Network. Find out more at InsideVoicesNetwork.com.